we're just approaching the canal with uh, two embankments on either side. It's late January, and FT's South Asia correspondent Ben Parkin is riding in a car through Dadu district in southeastern Pakistan. Around us we have green fields of um, growing crops. We have uh, quite a vibrant little village. On Ben's side of the embankment is the Pakistan he recognizes. People chatting, kids running, against the backdrop of fields and trees. This is the side that was saved from the floods. The embankments didn't break, and so there's a lot of light. But then he crosses to the other side. You can just see a complete dramatic change. It's completely apocalyptic. The fields have all been washed away. They're still flooded. The trees have fallen. What The houses that there are, there are, are damaged. Um, it's all sort of gray and dusty. You know, there's still stagnant water in the fields. This stark difference is because on one side, an embankment, which is a wall of dirt or stones, held up during a catastrophic flood last year. On the other, the embankment failed. Zahid Lashari is sitting in the car with Ben. He's a community activist, and he's telling Ben how on the side where the embankment failed, People have been living in makeshift shelters and tents. Kids can't go to school, and people have no access to clean water after the summer monsoon hit. That monsoon usually brings a fair amount of rain to Pakistan every year. And the country relies on that rain. If you go right after the monsoon, the land will be really green, you'll have crops growing, but Six months later, there won't be much greenery left, and it's entirely tied to those cycles of the monsoons. So it dries out really quickly, becomes very arid, can become quite lush once the rains have arrived. But then obviously are really vulnerable if something goes wrong with those rains. Last year, something did go wrong. More than 1,500 people have been killed in monsoonal flooding in Pakistan. So-called monsoon on steroids. More than five times the average rainfall. The worst floods in the country's history. Houses were destroyed. Agricultural land was damaged. Crops were wiped out. Millions of people were displaced from their homes. The abnormally intense monsoon rains caused the Indus River, which runs straight through Pakistan north to south, to overflow. All the country's provinces were affected, but Sindh, which sits at the very end of the Indus River, was hit the hardest. The river overflowing turned Sindhi farmland into a massive lake. In the worst affected areas, like in Sindh province, you could see people rowing around on boats, just the tops of cars and houses poking out of the muddy water. In the weeks and months after the flood stopped, Diseases like diphtheria and cholera spread because of all the standing water. In some places, it still hasn't receded. The floods caused an estimated $30 billion in damage and economic losses. And scientists have linked them to climate change, which is making the monsoon more and more unpredictable in South Asia. What happened in Pakistan was, in some senses, one of the most shocking and visible disasters that was really explicitly linked to climate change that showed a lot of people that this isn't a vague threat in the future. 
This is something that can upend an economy and a country and people's lives here and now. Chindera from the Financial Times. It's been months since those floods hit. Today on Behind the Money, climate disasters are becoming a growing problem. We're going to discuss Pakistan's plans to rebuild, how they'll pay for it, and whether that could become the blueprint for other vulnerable countries. Headlines of freak weather events seem never-ending nowadays. Wildfires, hurricanes, heat waves, the list goes on. And poor, developing countries are often the ones most at risk to these disasters, despite contributing the least to climate change. Recovering from extreme weather events is expensive. And for now, it's an open question as to who should foot the bill so these countries can rebuild. Take Pakistan, for example. It contributes just about 1% of global emissions, but now it has an enormous rebuilding effort ahead of it. There are thousands of villages like the one Ben Parkin visited. The world could learn a lot of lessons, right, if Pakistan gets it right or if Pakistan gets it wrong. So I think it's, it's turned into quite an important test of a lot of these ideas that still on some level remain theoretical. These ideas were less theoretical last November. FT climate reporter Camilla Hodson traveled to the Egyptian desert town of Sharm el-Sheikh for the UN's climate change conference, COP27. While she was there, she witnessed a historic development. After months of negotiations, there was finally an agreement reached to create a new loss and damages fund. That loss and damage fund aims to get heavy polluting richer nations to provide funding for the low polluting vulnerable countries that face extreme weather events. It's the countries often that are the least able to cope and to rebuild that are hit the worst. And then do they get trapped into a cycle of climate destruction and poverty? They might be dealing with all sorts of other immediate problems like healthcare, education, access to energy. Camilla wasn't surprised that the loss and damage fund took such priority in climate talks. It's become a key piece in a broader discussion that people are having around climate financing which is basically funding that's used to address climate change. Camilla says that climate financing has so far, for the most part, been based around two types of actions. The first is mitigation, which means doing things like reducing the amount of greenhouse gases that are emitted or increasing the use of clean energy. And the second term around climate financing is adaptation, which means doing things like building more resilient infrastructure, things such as flood walls or elevated buildings. What climate justice advocates and also developing nations have said for a long time is that that's all well and good, but it kind of misses this third piece, which is if it's too late to adapt, if the damage has already been done, if a flood has come and wiped away your town, what then? We need some support, we need some assistance in that instance, and it needs to come from the governments that have the money to finance that. It can't all just come from philanthropies or some other source. Loss and damage has been discussed for years, but countries only recently started taking the idea of a global fund seriously. What ultimately helped push it through at COP this time around? 
Ben Parkin says in part, it was Pakistan's disastrous flooding that happened just before COP started last year. The floods were a really shocking high-profile example of the havoc that climate change can cause. Pakistan was in the back of a lot of people's minds and helped to create the political pressure to get something like a losses and damages fund over the line. Now, who this fund will help, who will pay into it, and when it'll be operational, that's all up in the air. And while Pakistan would like to be at the front of the line, its need for funding is more immediate. So it's taken matters into its own hands. Pakistan in January held a conference in Geneva to raise money for its reconstruction and for what it called a climate resilient Pakistan. You know, not just to build back the bare minimum, but to build back in a way that would help them withstand future climate shocks. That conference raised $9 billion in pledges, some from organizations like the World Bank and the Islamic Development Bank and others from countries like the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and China. But the floods caused more than triple that in damage and economic losses. So that money is only a fraction of what the country needs. And on top of that, Pakistan's economy hasn't been in great shape. For decades, it's been trapped in constant boom-and-bust cycles. Right now, it's waiting on a bailout from the IMF to steer it away from defaulting. So it's really in a pinch for cash. While Ben was in Pakistan, he spoke to the country's planning minister, Essan Iqbal. He's a member of the cabinet, and he's in charge of how to spend the money raised in Geneva. He's a very powerful member of the government, and he's a very experienced official. I went to meet him at his office in Islamabad, which is largely a government town. Sat in his office, it's a big, big room. There are a continuous stream of people coming to meet him, asking him for things, making requests. In his interview, Iqbal outlined his country's path to recovery. But it's bigger than just flood resilience, given Pakistan's geography. It's dry and hot by the coasts, but cooler, mountainous, and often snowing up north near the Himalayas. Here's Iqbal. We are not only vulnerable to floods. We are now vulnerable to many more Threats. For example, there will be very high temperatures, very hot weathers. There will be droughts. There can be glacier meltdowns. And when it comes to flooding... One of the main projects is National Flood Protection Plan, which is a 10-year plan that will make sure that we construct new reservoirs or dams, new embankments, new waterways, so that you know floods can move faster to the sea. And we have less uh, inundation of land. But Ben says there are several caveats to this plan. One is actually getting that $9 billion that Pakistan raised in Geneva. It's one thing to make a pledge at an international conference uh, in the heat of the moment when there's a lot of pressure and a lot of attention on a particular disaster. But it's another to actually follow up and turn that pledge into money on the ground. A lot needs to happen between those two things. A lot of money that is pledged after these disasters, whether it's humanitarian aid or whether it's longer-term financing for reconstruction, never actually ends up where it's supposed to. It turns out to be an empty pledge. Even if all $9 billion does materialize, that amount only addresses the immediate needs. Things like getting people clean water and rebuilding houses. 
Pakistan will need more money to build infrastructure that'll survive future disasters. If a place is vulnerable to flooding, you need to start building your roads fundamentally differently, right? Or your railways or your telecoms lines. They need to be stronger. They need to be on higher ground. But then when you start thinking long-term about all the investments that are going to need to be made to bolster climate resilience, there's a lot more money that they're going to have to find along the way. And yet another roadblock to long-term recovery, the country's economic and political instability. In Pakistan, you have the, the weakness of the state and the fact that you have different levels of government, the federal government, provincial governments, you have district governments who are often at odds with one another. They're controlled by different parties. And this makes sort of cooperation that's needed really difficult. On the other hand, you have issues like corruption and mismanagement, where money that's supposed to go to one place ends up going to another. Pakistan's planning minister, Esan Iqbal, said the country's setting up a third-party monitoring system to make sure that the Geneva pledges are spent properly. But third-party monitoring might not be enough, given all the roadblocks that Pakistan faces. Not having enough money, political instability, corruption. Camilla Hodson says that all that can make the idea of climate financing unappealing for richer countries. If you're a donor government or a donor organization, to what extent do you want to attach strings to the money that you're giving? Do you want to be dictating to this country how they should be spending it or like how they track spending, how they monitor progress? There's probably a line to walk there between trying to encourage good management and good spending, but not being too prescriptive, dictatorial. And so that's complicated, this question as well of will the money be well spent? How do we make sure of that? And so all of that difficulty can be a kind of dampener on the willingness of donors to give money. And that's just one of the challenges the UN's Loss and Damage Fund faces, as officials figure out how it'll operate. What happens in Pakistan, I think, will be a kind of example for anyone and everyone involved in the loss and damages conversation to look at. There'll be examples of where things have gone well, where things haven't gone well, what you need to prioritize, what kind of like planning framework works, like what are the time horizons that you're planning over when you've got this huge rebuilding effort, there are going to be infinite lessons to be learned from it. Meanwhile, many Pakistanis have little faith that any of this aid will come through, especially in the areas hardest hit by the floods. And with the next monsoon just a couple months away, rebuilding anything with the long term in mind is tough. It's hard not to put a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. And Ben Parkin's seen how that approach can backfire. So one of the risks is that you start rebuilding something thinking it's what you need, but turns out to actually potentially make future problems worse, right? So sort of a maladaptation. And there are already examples that people point to of this. So there's a drain in Sindh, which was partly financed by the World Bank years ago that was designed to help with water management, but ultimately, you know, a lot of critics and local activists say made the flooding worse because it burst and in some cases water was trapped. It's really difficult to get it right. And there are lots of examples where they haven't. Back in Dadu district, 
Zahid Lashari, who we heard from earlier, passes a school. He's telling Ben how the building was ruined by floodwaters. And the kids sit outside and study under tents. He says the children are haunted by the flood's destruction and are scared it could happen again. That's not the only destroyed school Ben saw on his trip. The next day, he traveled to a different area and visited a village called Kundi to see the rebuilding efforts there. We're at the site of a school in the village. The building is still standing, but inside it's complete ruins. Uh, There's dung everywhere, the cobwebs. Apparently it's used basically as a donkey shed. Ben assumed this school was damaged last fall, but it was actually destroyed over a decade ago, when floods hit the country in 2010. This school is just one reason why people here don't trust the government's big talk about rebuilding. To them, it seems like empty promises. It's been 13 years and uh, no one has repaired this school, so why should they have any confidence at all that that's going to be different this time around? While this village and hundreds of others wait for assistance... The conversation of who will pay for disasters worsened by climate change isn't going away. The UN's loss and damage fund has been created, but that's just the first step. Camilla says it'll be on the agenda again at COP28 later this year. We don't know how large this fund is going to be. We don't know exactly who it will help, who will have to pay into it, how it will operate. All of those kind of mechanical questions are still to be answered. And in the meantime, there are all sorts of other ideas floating around, which still relate to loss and damage, still relate to this idea of how do you help the people that are suffering the most and have done the least to cause climate change through other means. It doesn't necessarily have to be a a UN fund. It could be some kind of new insurance mechanism. It could be about financing early warning systems and resilience, that sort of thing. So the loss and damage fund is important. It's very symbolic, but it's, it's kind of not the be all and end all. Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Special thanks to Julia Barton, John Reed, and Jotsna Singh. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.